Lord, as we open your word this Palm Sunday, um, we long to hear from you. We long uh, for your Holy Spirit to feed us, to challenge us, to encourage us. Um, Feed us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have been doing a series called The Land of the Bible, kind of a, uh, a geographical study of the Bible. And we have gone to various locations since it's Palm Sunday. Today, guess where we're going to go? Yeah, we're going to go to Jerusalem. So here's the map. Um, we first looked at Caesarea Maritime by the sea. And then we went to the Sea of Galilee, spent a lot of time there, went up north to Caesarea Philippi. You can't see it on the map. Then we looked at Mount Carmel and Megiddo. Well, now let's journey south. And Jesus would have done this a number of times in his life and in his ministry. He would have journeyed south through Samaria and Sychar, They believe that's where the woman at the well would have been. And to go to Jerusalem, most of the time they would have gone first through the town of Jericho. And then from Jericho, there is a uh, a road that goes down a steep ravine and then up the Mount of Olives and then into Jerusalem. And that is the path Jesus would have taken on Palm Sunday. Now, as he's coming in, so Jericho's over there. As he's coming in from the east, this is what they would have seen as they were coming down the Mount of Olives, the temple complex. Now, you remember, King Solomon built a beautiful temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then the Jews went back and rebuilt a temple, and it was okay But then remember Herod, King Herod, who was not Jewish, but he was a great builder. He said, all right, since I'm the king over this region, I am going to build you an awesome temple. So in the time of Jesus, and he he built this temple mount. So it was uh, a a wall that held up this this structure on top of a, a mountain in Jerusalem, And there were these various courts surrounding the temple. And then the temple structure, this is the temple itself. There's the holy place. And then the holy of holies in the innermost part of the the temple. This was gold in front. And as you would come down the Mount of Olives, there it is. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So now, here's a picture. We're looking from the west... Today, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. You go, oh, did they rebuild it? No. That is actually a Muslim mosque built on top of the Jewish Temple Mount. Okay? So there are Jews who want to rebuild a temple. But there's a Muslim mosque on top of the Temple Mount. And some people would say the most disputed piece of real estate on the planet is the Temple Mount right there. 
Okay? Now, in the back is, and if, if you were to walk off the Temple Mount, there's a steep valley called the Kidron Valley. Jesus would have crossed that on his way to the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. So a steep valley, and then you go up, and this is the Mount of Olives. This is also where he would have come from riding a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. All right? So here, uh, so now we're, we're on top of the Mount of Olives, and these are pilgrims uh, from a, a, a recent Palm Sunday walking the path that Jesus would have, have walked. Some places it's really steep. And not to disappoint you, but when you go to Jerusalem, there's just these phone lines and electric lines all over the place, okay? You would think it would be this, like, pristine. Now it's like this, okay? Down, 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 all right? And then uh, I think these are Coptic Christians from Egypt with palm branches reenacting uh, Palm Sunday. So here's what we want to do. We want to look at Luke's version of Palm Sunday. And we want to see three things. The king's welcome into Jerusalem. And then secondly, the king's weeping over Jerusalem. And then the king's wrath as he turns over the tables in, uh, in the temple. All right? So here we go. Luke 19, 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, that's... Uh, on the other side, the top and the other side of the Mount of Olives, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt. Uh, it's a, a male donkey, a puppy. What do you call a, a colt? All right. A colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, that's about half of, of the story. Um, here's Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It's on this downside of the Mount of Olives. They, he would have probably walked up the Mount of Olives. Here's Bethpage, probably where he picked up the donkey. And then rode it down the Kidron Valley up to the temple area. Now, um, every year when I study for Christmas or Easter, okay, it's the same text in either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But I always pray, Lord, show me something that I may not have caught before. And... Um, as I read, especially Luke's version of the triumphal entry, I kept thinking, why all this emphasis on the donkey? What's the deal with the donkey here? Eight verses devoted to the donkey. All right? Now, 
The, uh, the first, uh, the easy answer is Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem to make the point that he's the Messiah. Because in the Old Testament, there's a verse in Zechariah 9, 9, which says your Messiah is going to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. Right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble, he's not on a war horse. He's humble and mounted on a donkey. And then it gets even real specific. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right? So, in essence, Jesus didn't have a microphone, didn't have a billboard. How do you announce that you're the Messiah? He's, he's, he's acting out a visible sign. Yes, I'm the Messiah that is spoken of. I'm the king spoken of in Zechariah 9, 9. Okay? So the, the easy answer to the question, why all this emphasis on the donkey? Well, he's clearly saying I'm the Messiah. But why does Luke go into all the detail about you're going to untie it, and if somebody asks you, why are you taking our donkey? Say, the Lord needs it. And then he says, they did that. And somebody said, what are you doing? Stealing our donkey. And they go, the Lord needs it. Why all this emphasis on borrowing the donkey? And as I thought about that, it hit me. Do you ever read about Jesus riding a horse or a donkey in all his ministry? Not once. You know, he would have gone from Galilee to Jerusalem a number of times. Well, really, every year. About 100 miles. He walked. He's always walking. He's so poor that to, to announce to the world that he is the Messiah, he needs to actually borrow a donkey. That would be like today, uh, Jesus coming, and how do we know it's him? Well, he, he needs to borrow a car because he's so poor. What a, what a picture of contrast. King of kings, Lord of lords, God of the universe, so poor to announce that he's the king, he needs to send some disciples to borrow a donkey. It's a picture of utter humility, yet he is the king of kings and lord of lords. All right, so enough on the donkey. Let's keep going. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they got it. He's the king that Zechariah 9.9 was talking about. Okay? He's He's claiming to be the Messiah, and we're praising him as the Messiah. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Okay. Now, um, 
they get it. He's the Messiah. They're praising him. But I am one of the people who believes that they didn't really understand what was going on here. They thought he was going to save them from Roman oppression. He was coming to save them, not from Rome, but from their sin. And as the week went on, they saw that he wasn't calling together a band of rebels to rebel against Rome. They abandoned him. And by Friday, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now, today, there are a number of scholars, guys I really respect, who argue adamantly that the crowd that was praising him and the crowd that was calling for his crucifixion can't be the same crowd. It had to be two different crowds. The Palm Sunday crowd was a believing crowd of pilgrims traveling from Jericho. They got it. But by Friday, uh, it was a different crowd. It was the Jerusalem crowd. They didn't get it. They were unbelieving. And their motive for saying that there were two distinct crowds is this. Jesus defends them, right? The, The Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Um, No, I'm not going to rebuke them. He receives their praise. Therefore, they must have got it right. They must have praised him from pure motives. They must have been true believers. I'm still of the opinion that most of the Palm Sunday crowd didn't get it. They were cheering for a political Messiah, not a Messiah who would save them from their sin. Let me give you two pieces of evidence. All right? Number one, even the apostles were unclear. Remember last week in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're... Uh, you're, you're uh, Elijah. Who do you say I am? Peter. Oh, 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 You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you didn't speak this on your own. My father, you know, you spoke divine revelation, Peter. But do you know what happens right after Peter speaks divine revelation? Satan speaks through him. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here, I'm going to go and die. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine that, rebuking Jesus. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think Peter thought he was a political savior. Doesn't mean he didn't. I don't think we're saying he was unsaved. I think he truly was a true believer, but his concept of the Messiah was all wrapped up in Jesus being like King David, a conquering king. Jesus says, no, I'm going to go die. No, no, you, let me give you some advice. Don't talk. You need some positive thinking. Here, read this book, My Best Life Now. Here, read, you know. 
you're thinking negative thoughts, and Jesus says, you don't, you don't get it. So even his apostles, I think, were, were confused up until the resurrection. All right? But then, in Luke 19, same chapter, Jesus is coming from Jericho. Crowds are following him. And it says this, as they heard these things, so he's, he's telling parables and teaching, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, Luke is saying the crowd, even in Jericho, had a misunderstanding They thought the kingdom, the political kingdom, was coming now. So he told a parable to slow them down, the parable of the minas, very similar to the parable of the talents. And the parable basically says this, a king gave out some money to some of his subjects, and he went away, he went away a long time, and then when he comes back, he's going to give an, he wants to, to, to have them give an account for what they did to build his kingdom. But the point is, it's not happening now. It's, there's going to be a delay. So get busy building the kingdom with the gifts you have. Okay? So he tells this parable to counteract the idea that he's going to Jerusalem to raise up an army right now. So all that to say, I think there's plenty of reason to believe that the crowd was confused, okay? Now, what does this tell you? You can be all for Jesus and not saved. You can be all excited about Jesus. We could be waving palms around. You go, where are the palms, by the way? Not all the Gospels talk about the palms. But, but you can sing the praise songs. You can be brought up in a Christian church, in a Christian culture, and not truly understand the gospel. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The most terrifying verse in the Bible, two verses. Matthew seven twenty two. On that day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Describes many in the crowd. There are are many pro-Jesus people who are not saved. They're excited about Jesus, but for the wrong reason. There's the the health, wealth Jesus, right? Accept Jesus and he will make you healthy, wealthy, and and happy. And the the whole focus is Jesus is here for this lifetime mainly to make you prosperous. A lot of people have bought that Jesus. There's the traditional Jesus, which is, well, I was raised a Christian. My parents were Christians. I was brought up in this church. Oh, I've... Of course I believe in Jesus, but their hearts have never been transformed. There's moral Jesus. Jesus is my example to follow, and he is our example to follow. But it's all about me being as moral as I can. You don't get the gospel if that's the Jesus you've accepted. 
Okay. There's political Jesus. A lot of these folks were all about political Jesus. Let's co-opt him for our cause, whether it's left or right. Okay. He, he supports our political cause. Okay. Well, who's the true Jesus? The Jesus who came to really set us free, not from Rome, not, not even necessarily from our aches and pains, but from our sin. The Jesus who came to die on the cross. And until you see that you need him as your savior from sin, I fear you're in danger of being one of these people. Remember the little parable Jesus told of the two men who went to the temple to pray? One a Pharisee. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I don't do this. I don't do that. I'm pretty moral. I tithe. And he, he was bringing his own righteousness before God. But the other one, a tax collector, boo, hiss, vile sinner, right? By the way, April 15th coming up, pay your taxes, boo, hiss, pay the tax collector, right? He knows he's an embezzler. He, he can't even look up to heaven. And here's what he said. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Is that the Jesus you're trusting in? Right. So um, we see the king's welcome. And you know what? There are places in Scripture where the, the words that come out of somebody's mouth uh, the words are accurate. I think of Caiaphas who says, isn't it better that one man die for the nation than the whole nation die? His words were true, but he didn't get it. I think on Palm Sunday, their words were true. I don't think it's wrong to repeat them in song and, and to praise him with the right motive, but I don't think they got it. So I think Palm Sunday is always a good Sunday to, to examine yourself and ask, am I truly believing in the right Jesus, okay? Now, that's the king's welcome. Let's talk about the king's weeping. If you were to go to Israel on the way down the Mount of Olives, you would see this chapel. It's called Dominus Flevit. Do we have any Latin students here? Dominus Lord, right. right. Flevit? <laughs> Tears. Or wept. Okay? So it's the Lord wept. Dominus. So it was an Italian guy who built this, right? Back in the 1950s. And it's a little chapel to commemorate where they say Jesus stopped and wept over Jerusalem. Now, before I read the words of Jesus, let me give you a little history uh, lesson here. Right off of that totally accurate site, Wikipedia. Okay. All right. Now, it's around 30 AD. 40 years later, okay, Jesus didn't lead a rebellion against Rome, but others did. It did not go so well for the Jews who rebelled against Rome. 
And in 70 AD, the Romans came in and utterly crushed Jerusalem. So here's an account. Right? The siege of Jerusalem, the fortified capital city of the province, quickly turned into a stalemate. Unable to breach the city's defenses, the Roman armies established a permanent camp just outside the city, digging a trench around the circumference of its walls and building a wall as high as the city walls themselves around Jerusalem. So here's, okay, this is the Temple Mount, but there was a wall all the way around the city of Jerusalem. The Romans built a second wall at higher or as high as this wall around the entire city and hemmed it in. Okay. Anyone caught in the trench, so they, they go over their wall and they want and, and they go to the second wall, but they're caught in the trench. Anyone caught in the trench attempting to flee the city would be captured, crucified, and placed in lines on top of the dirt wall facing into Jerusalem. Romans began to construct ramparts for the siege. Those attempting to escape the city were crucified with as many as 500 crucifixions occurring in a day. Okay. Uh, Tacitus, a historian of the time, notes that those who were besieged in Jerusalem amounted to no fewer than 600,000 that men and women alike and every age engaged in armed resistance. Everyone who could pick up a weapon did. Both sexes showed equal determination, preferring death to a life that involved expulsion from their country. Josephus, another first century historian, puts the number of the besieged near 1 million. So was it 500,000, 600,000, 1 million? You know, sometimes Josephus exaggerated. All three walls of Jerusalem were eventually destroyed as well as the temple and its citadels. The city was then put to the torch, totally burned, with most survivors taken into slavery. And then some of those overturned stones in their places of impact can still be seen. So uh, they encircled the city, hemmed it in, uh, tore down its walls, burned the temple and the city, crucified and killed, let's say, hundreds of thousands, enslaved the others, and the stones were knocked down. So here's why Jesus weeps. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. What would have made for peace? To submit to their true king. Right. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He prophesies that there will be a wall built around the wall and tear you down to the ground, you Jerusalem, you and your children within you, not just the city, but the people. 
And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Visitation is a, a word used many times to talk about God showing up. You missed it. That's why Jesus weeps. But obviously, he's not just weeping for their physical death. Think about it. Their physical death is just the first day of their eternal death. Can, can you think of anything more terrible than people you know, your own family members, your own co-workers, your own friends, going to hell for eternity? Okay, What could be worse an eternal damnation. How often do you really think about that? Do you ever shed a tear for the people you know that are unsaved? Jesus did. In the middle of a parade, praising him. He stops and weeps. George Whitfield, a preacher back in the 1700s, uh, at times as he would preach, he would look out upon the unsaved and he would start weeping. And once he said this, how can I help weeping when you will not weep for yourselves though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction? And then there, there are, are certain verses that deserve to be uh, read and repeated on a, on a regular basis. And there are certain illustrations that I've, I know you've heard it before, but I think we've got to bring this out at least once a year. There's a magician named Penn. He's an atheist. He, he, thinks, he thinks it's ridiculous that there's a God. Yet, he believes that if you believe there's a God and you believe there's a hell and you believe Jesus is the only way, you got to tell people. So Penn Gillette says this, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate people to just live your Christian life without telling them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this, salvation, is more important than that, the truck. Jesus wept. As you pray this week, as you think about Holy Week, will you pray for the lost people in your life? Will you weep for them? Will you invite them to hear the gospel? Will you ask God, rearrange my priorities so nothing matters as much as the salvation of souls. 
Let's take a look at one last thing. The, The king's wrath. We saw the king's welcome, the king's weeping, now the king's wrath. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written. Now, now uh, Jesus is going to quote from Isaiah. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. And Luke's gospel doesn't have it, but the original verse in Isaiah and Mark's gospel has, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Very important phrase. Okay. Those who were familiar with Isaiah would have just automatically connected the dots and said, my house, the temple, shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay? Now, um, if you were to ask most people, most Sunday school classes, why did Jesus go berserk in the temple? Most people would say, oh, well, they were selling animals and charging an exorbitant amount of money to exchange the money. Um, So the irreverence shouldn't be... It'd be like if somebody was in the back selling T-shirts. Valley Brook! Or bumper stickers or foam finger. I I don't know. uh, so, So they think... Jesus got upset because of the irreverence. Well, actually, if you're going to sacrifice in the temple, you need an animal. If you're coming from Galilee, you're not going to walk a little lamb for 100 miles. You know what you're going to do? You're going to bring some money, and then you're going to buy one. So this was actually a legit thing they were doing, but you know, here's the problem. So here's the temple complex, these are the walls around the temple complex. And there are these, these other walls, uh, different courts. Now, this wall right here is a wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, you could only go into this area right here. Only Jews could go further. And then there's the court of the women, the court of the men, the priests, da 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 they set up their business in the court of the Gentiles. And they were just all about the money, and they didn't care about the Gentiles. It's our church. It's all about us. So, yeah, we need, we need to, to sell these, these animals. So, yeah, do it out here. Let's not... Welcome those dirty Gentiles. So, um, let me read this is a devotional by a guy named Jonathan Parnell. Um, you go, where's Piper? This was on his website, so this guy wrote on his website. Okay. <laughs> the context of Isaiah 56 tells us more. According to Isaiah's vision, eunuchs would keep God's covenant, Isaiah 56, and foreigners would join themselves to him, Isaiah 56, and the outcasts would be gathered with his people, Isaiah 56. But Jesus approached a temple pulsing with buying and selling the court of the Gentiles, the place designed 
all along for foreigners to congregate, for the nations to seek the Lord, was overrun with opportunists trying to turn a prophet. Their economic drive and their false security in the temple as an emblem of blessing had crowded out space for the nations to draw near, and therefore Jesus was driving them out. Now, he asked this. Do our relational investments, okay, in other words, who, you, who do you spend your time with during the week? Who do you invite to your house? Who do you go out to dinner with? Do our relational investments and our corporate gatherings, church, Sunday morning, even in a small way, reflect even in a small way the heart of a God who gathers the outcasts. This question is no more relevant than on Easter when our churches try especially to look their finest. When we assemble for worship this weekend, no one will set up tables to exchange currency. No one will lead in their oxen in hopes of getting rich. No one will tote a cage of high-priced pigeons. But our decorations may be elaborate. Our attire may be elegant. Our music may be world-class. We may put exuberant energy into these things and make it an impressive spectacle. But if Jesus were to come, if he were to step into our churches this Sunday, he'd be looking for the rabble. Where are the misfits? the socially marginalized, the outcasts. It's more about where are your co-sinners than, ooh, it's irreverent that, that somebody's making noise with the cattle. It's not the noise. It's the we don't care about the outcasts, the people who aren't our friends. The place should be brimming with outcasts. Bring them in. Preach the gospel. Bring the good news to everyone. Leonard Ravenhill wrote a poem. Could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let the patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? So, what is the good news? You know, some people go, I'm too much of a sinner to go to church. (laughs) We got plenty of room for sinners. In fact, that's the requirement. That you are a sinner. But the good news is, sinners who see their sin and ask, what what could I possibly do to be saved? The good news is, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, not to lead a political rebellion, rebellion, but to die on a cross to pay for your sin. And all who trust in him are forgiven and saved for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into this holy week, we understand what your Messiahship is all about. We thank you that you went to the cross 
Lord, stir us, move our hearts. Bring to mind people that we can invite, maybe with an email, maybe with a phone call, maybe with a postcard. Lord, change our priorities so we're not like those who could care less about the Gentiles. We see your passion. We see your tears. Duplicate that in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.